Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com don't touch that dial you're tuned in to the dread podcast network from nice guy productions world headquarters overlooking the glamorous san fernando valley i'm mick garris and this is Postmortem AMA, the fun size edition where you can ask me anything and asking your questions on your behalf is producer Joe Russo. Producer Joe, how is it? Uh, things are good, Mick. Happy holidays. Thank you. We have uh, a lot to be grateful for, uh, especially considering we've been, we're now concluding our fifth year of Postmortem, the podcast. It's pretty unbelievable how much and how long we've been doing this <laughs> i know I, I no one ever imagined that we would still be going we've gone through first we started out at podcast one and then we moved to blumhouse and then we moved to fangoria and then from fangoria we went to our current home at dread and it's been a long road but man we've talked to some great people we've done over a hundred interviews so much to be grateful for and uh I, I want to thank the audience for joining us and for sharing with your friends and, and helping us grow. Yeah, it's been pretty amazing. And it's been pretty amazing getting to know all of our uh, listeners and followers over the years. And it's been fun for me to get to interview you the last couple of years. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was talking with uh, Abby Bernstein, your biographer uh, about how I'm probably the only person next to her who's interviewed you more. <laughs> that's, that's true. That is true. In a world of having been interviewed almost yes. at least as much as I have interviewed. So. Pretty, pretty amazing. Well, all right. Shall we jump into some uh, holiday and end of the year themed questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Rick asks two holiday questions for both Mick and Joe. Favorite Christmas Carol adaptation and eggnog, either with booze or without, yay or nay? What do you, let's start with eggnog, Mick. I feel like I already know the answer to this for you. It's a very <laughs> easy answer because I don't drink alcohol and I'm a vegan. So no <laughs> eggs, no dairy. And no booze for me. So uh, I have never had a, a, a cup or a glass of eggnog. Which I can't just... imagine that there is a vegan eggnog yet, right? Is even there? If, even if there were, just the name eggnog kind of makes me throw up <laughs> in the back of my mouth. Yeah, uh, It is an acquired taste. 
Um, and it's an acquired taste that I, I enjoy. So I'm a, I'm a yay with, with booze. Uh, so <laughs> I will, I will drink, I will drink up for Mick when he doesn't. Yeah. So. You can have my mug. Yeah, there we go. Uh, but let's, let's focus in on the first question. Uh, Christmas Carol. We've never really talked about one of the most famous ghost stories of all time on this show. And uh, one of the most, uh, filmed stories from Charles Dickens. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there are a couple of them. Uh, the best one in my thinking is the 1951 Scrooge, also called A Christmas Carol, starring Alistair Sim. Mm. It, it is a really wonderful one. But the one I grew up with as a child was Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol <laughs> with songs and stuff. And I, I, it was at a time when I was I wanted to be a cartoonist and I was drawing cartoons and I watched the Mr. Magoo and uh, that one really captivated me. So for nostalgic purposes, I would watch that again. I haven't seen it in many years, but as I'm far sure as it's still fun, I, I used to watch the um, Scrooge McDuck Christmas Carol, Disney Christmas <laughs> Carol cartoon. Yeah. And I loved I still love that one. Um much shorter than I remembered it being uh, <laughs> yeah. once I found it on Disney Plus. But uh, one of my favorites is Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I Muppets were a part of my young life growing up. And I feel like, boy, Michael Caine, like he he sells it, you know, he, <laughs> he even when he's movie. doing a, even when he's doing a money gig, Michael Caine is always there. And yeah. he, he just commits and uh and uh, i i love his performances in virtually everything i've done even in something like jaws 4 he commits sure. you know? yeah yeah no he's always he's always great and he's exceptionally great i think in, in muppets christmas carol which is uh playing at the new beverly this weekend and i might uh, uh might have to sneak by and go go see it in 35 millimeter but i think uh, it's a requirement for you joe yeah I, i'm thinking i'm thinking so too uh all right John Zander asks, and, and this is kind of a two-parter from John Zander and, and uh, another listener, Mark. John Zander asks, what do you think of Christmas horror movies? And Mark wants to know, do you have a favorite Christmas horror movie? Well, I think it's certainly valid. Holiday horror has always been a staple in the genre. Um, and I do have a favorite. You know, there have been several crappy Christmas movies, and there have been some good ones. And I know I have a feeling I know which one you're going to go for, Joe. But for me, it's the Finnish film Rare Exports A Christmas Tale. Mm, yes, we've talked about this one. It's a good one. It is a work of genius. It's not like anything you've ever seen before. And it is so entertaining and unexpected. And the writer directed um, Jalmari Halander. Uh, is from Finland, and it was based on a sh two short films he made back in 2000 and two 2003 and 2005, I think. But in 2010, it came out in cinemas. And if you haven't seen it, and you like your Christmases grim, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is one for you. Uh, it is easily my favorite Christmas horror movie. I mean, I'm very curious, Nick, which one you think I'm going to pick. <laughs> I, I'm guessing Krampus. I don't know why. Oh, oh, that's no, that's a good guess. Uh, I look, I love Krampus. I think it's super fun. Um, I think it's the perfect double billing with gremlins. Um, yeah. You know, those which are which are two of my kind of holiday rotations. But I, you know, this question came in a couple of days ago and I've been thinking about it 
for a long time about which one, not just which is my favorite, but which one actually genuinely scares me. Uh, and, and, you know, Krampus and Gremlins are so much fun, you know, and there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of good ones over the years, but um, I'm going to throw a one that I don't know if we've ever talked about on the show before, uh, but eyes wide shut. <laughs> now there's a choice. Well, we're, we're both going dark. Yes, we are. I mean, and, and, and pitch black dark in, in my case, but that's for sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's and the uh, European cut. Yeah, sure. Of course. Of course. Less, <laughs> less uh, floating black CG people. Uh, so, no, you know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting puzzle box of a movie because Kubrick obviously died right before release. And so there's so many unanswered questions about what he was thinking. And there's so much like rabbit hole conspiracy theories you can go down on the internet, uh, kind of piecemealing all the different you know, mise-en-scene set designs and, and what does it mean? And, you know, but to me, it's just, it's just kind of a, you know, we we're talking about Christmas Carol. Um, it almost is kind of a Christmas Carol like journey, like the dark cousin to it's a wonderful life about, you know, a man who is wanting something greater in his life and being shown a glimpse of a society that he could never possibly hope to aspire to and realizing kind of the terrifying realities that come with it. Uh, I think it's chilling. Um, I think it's a chilling movie uh, fueled by Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's performances. And, you know, it's just a weird pop culture artifact that they broke up to after making the movie. I don't know. It's really it's a really it's a movie that fascinates me endlessly. It's a bold choice. And I'm proud of you, Joe. <laughs> Thank you. <Nick>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there you go. Then, but but, you know. Gremlins and Krampus too. Uh. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Gremlins is certainly way up at the top of the tree, a shining oh, yeah. ornament upon the top. It's so much fun. Um, okay, now that we've covered our favorite Christmas movies, our Christmas horror movies, yeah. uh, Ryan asks, Mick, you've done over 100 interviews for the Postmortem Podcast, and I've been conducting interviews since your days as a music journalist. How has your approach to interviews changed and evolved over the years? Well, it has changed in particular with postmortem, starting with the TV show, because rather than being a journalist, I'm a filmmaker interviewing other filmmakers. And that started in the postmortem TV show back in 2010 on FearNet. Those shows you can watch on MickGarrisInterviews.com with a lot of the other stuff, including earlier ones. But what has changed is, I've become more comfortable with uh, just sitting down and having a conversation. It used to be that I would prepare a list of questions. I wouldn't always uh, ask them all, but I would have a list of questions just as insurance. And now I'm comfortable with sitting down and just having the conversation and maybe having a couple of, of uh, topic points that we want to discuss or uh, have a list of somebody's credits in front of me just so I don't freeze up on them. But uh, it's more a simple conversation without a list of required questions that I want to do. Because I find when you nail yourself to prepared questions, you often lose out the tributaries that lead to so much fascinating information. Some of the best stuff comes from questions that were not prepared in advance. And so uh, the, it's become a much looser approach, whether it feels like it or not to the audience, it makes for even deeper and better conversations with the, uh, with the guests. 
I think so. And I've, I've watched that evolve, you know, because when we started the podcast, I think you were still kind of clinging to some questions. And as we progressed, you know, I probably around season two, I feel like was when this started, uh, you, you did start kind of letting go of those questions and just letting the interviews flow and, and, I think that's one of the reasons why we've been doing it for five years. Well, so. here's the hope, and uh, here's the five more. You know, I uh, I always feel like, God, are we going to run out of interesting people? But five years worth, and that still hasn't happened. There's so many more people out there to talk to. I completely agree. All right. TDE Pero asks, as we enter into a new year, where do you see the horror genre in the coming years? What's your predictions? And P.S., Thank you, Mick and Joe, for another entertaining year of the podcast. Well, thank you for that. Um, you know, it's hard to predict. And anyone who makes predictions publicly is <laughs> bound to be embarrassed. So, <laughs> But what I do predict is more diversity uh, of ideas, as well as the different voices in making genre films. Uh, I think the digital platforms are where you're going to find all of the most interesting work. I, I think the theater complexes are going to, you know, roll, roll more and more and more into franchise territory as they already have. Mm. So many really great films have, have died on the vine because uh, people only are selling and going to franchises. But I think we're going to see a lot of exciting voices from different genders, different uh, nationalities, uh, different uh, economic levels, all of that stuff, because uh, filmmaking has become democratized in the tools of its making and in the platforms that are available. So uh, I'm excited by that diversity, but I'm also cowed by the vast avalanche of choices available to us. I think that's probably right. I mean, I think the, the big reckoning that needs to happen in the next couple of years, and this kind of ties into our next question, um, which maybe I can just ask it now, but uh, is, is there has to be a budget reckoning on, on movies because we can't keep making movies that are aimed at the theaters and having them go to streaming and not make any money. Right. You know, as wonderful as yeah. shutter is in, in championing diverse voices and stories, um, you know, the license fees that they can actually afford to uh, buy these movies for streaming rights pales in comparison to probably the monies that were spent on them. Um, yeah. And the money spent on marketing movies for theatrical release is almost always as much as or more than the production costs. So you can't yeah. make you can't make a five or ten million dollar movie and put it into theaters and hope for a return without spending another 50 million just to reach the audience. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know streaming, that's why I think so many movies fall into the void because they don't get these big, you know, marketing pushes and, and the license fees are portions of the budgets. And so I do think there's going to have to be some kind of reckoning in terms of what is a theatrical movie versus what is a, a streaming movie and what can those budgets actually, you know, afford to withstand because right now I think executives are operating from a place of fear as, as they tend to do cyclically um, and usually do, but, but they're so worried about losing these big budgets on movies that they're over controlling the movies that are being made and we're seeing kind of a, 
we need we need we need maverick uh producers who know i can make a movie for this price and i can give you know these creatives a chance yeah, right? and I don't. I don't want to give up the theatrical experience. It's, no, no, no. It's I, I the don't. The way either, movies are meant to be seen. Um, I, I do think because the risk is higher right now and losing your money on a movie than ever before. Uh, I think that 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 the executives are operating from a place of greater fear than than maybe at any other point in history. Yeah. So and yet and yet they're spending more on the franchise movies, these movies are more expensive than movies have ever been. Yeah. Because the upside is if you spend $250 million on a movie and another $150 million on its marketing, yeah. uh, you have the potential of a billion dollar box office movie, which is no big deal these days. Yeah. I remember back when I was working um, uh, with Spielberg at Hamblin on projects and Terminator 2, was being made or had just been made and the budget was a hundred million dollars. And wow. Steven said to me, I don't know how I could spend a hundred million dollars on a movie. <laughs> Obviously he learned. Well, but... yes, he, yes, he did fast. Cause reportedly uh West side story, he spent well North of that. So <laughs> on, wow. uh, on singing and dancing, you know? Yeah. There so... <laughs> you go. So yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate truth that what we see is dictated by financial concerns. And, yeah. and, you know, the problem is that, the Arclight theaters, Pacific theaters went dark. They yeah. went out of business. AMC is trying to cover a bankruptcy. Uh, yeah. They've had infusions of cash and all, but uh, it's difficult to be a profitable film uh, distributor. Yeah. Let alone a pandemic. But speaking of yeah. pandemics, let's let's uh, let's drill into this next question here from Mike. Uh, first, he says, "Thank you, Mick and Joe, for creating the undisputed best horror podcast in the universe." <laughs> well, undisputed in these rooms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Assuming the pandemic ever ends, uh, do you think the trend of releasing movies to premium streaming services, uh, parallel to or in place of theaters, will continue? What are the implications of this trend if it persists? Yeah, I think people have learned to not go to the theaters to consume their entertainment. And, and I hope that that changes, but I am not optimistic in that regard. And I'm normally a fairly sunny fellow when it comes to the future, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty dark time as we've been discussing for, for being able to continue seeing movies in theaters and having them be profitable enough to encourage new voices, new visions in theatrical feature films. Yeah. I mean, we were literally just talking about West Side Story and this weekend it grossed $10 million against a potential $130 million budget. And that's before wow. marketing, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's got so long to go before it can even potentially break even. And, uh, you know, but I think there, there really is a problem where there's a large chunk of the movie going audience that is hesitant to go. And like Mick said earlier, they're only showing up for the big tent poles. Uh, right. And we saw this in October perfectly illustrated when you had bond made money and uh, Shang-Chi made money and Halloween made money, but you know, last night in Soho and antlers did not, you know, right. the, the Ridley Scott's the last duel, which is probably the best movie I've seen all year. Didn't a great film, a great film. Um, so, you know, I do think that 
people are being more selective about when they go to the theater. And you have these eventized uh, temples that are, that are attracting people. And they're, they're, they're saying this one, not that one, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, we've talked about it before, but the movie going experience has become more of a theme park ride than a storytelling experience. Right. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I think, again, I think this speaks to that budgetary reckoning that's going to probably have to happen in the next year to two years across all genres, not just horror um, in terms of, you know, how do we make money on streaming movies and how do independent films produce a movie that could potentially work for theatrical and streaming and not lose their shirt, you know, and And how do we, and how do we get, how do we get audiences to feel safe going to the movies consistently again? Yeah. Um, and even the streaming thing is is a big problem because, you know, when Netflix puts out their movies and TV series, uh, they just throw them out there. You get billboards in New York and L.A., sure. but there's no support for those projects uh, other than just here it is. Take a look um, on Amazon. It's the same deal. So they don't have the kind of machine that theatrical features do. So it's it's very difficult to sift through everything that's out there to find the kernels of gold. Yeah, it is. It's true. Hopefully next year uh, people will sift through and find Alejandro Bruges's uh, new horror film written by Joe Russo. And <laughs> yes, yeah, we can find a way for that to f- find its way through. But you know, I do. Joe worry Russo about and that. Chris Lamont. That's yeah. true. Joe Russo and Chris Lamont. Yes, thank you. Sorry, sorry, Chris, <laughs> if you're listening. Uh, yeah, no, but, but, uh, you know, I, I do worry about that. I, I think about that a lot, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it was, it was bizarre to see our independent Bruce Willis movie, you know, kind of come and go on the VOD limited theatrical market last year during the height of the pandemic. And then it drops on Netflix and it was the number two movie over Thanksgiving, which was bonkers. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Especially considering, you know, the movie, but, <laughs> but <laughs> and uh, they didn't promote it at all. It was just no, there. No, it just, it just Bruce Willis's face carried it to the top of the algorithm. So, yeah. uh, you know, it was, it was pretty remarkable to see, but um, and worth congratulating know, by the way. Oh, thank you. But, but uh, you know, I mean, we don't have a Bruce Willis in, in the last will and Testament of Charles Abernathy. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if, you know, fans and goodwill and, and, uh, and whatnot, and, and hopefully a good trailer can, can lift, you know, us, us up again. But, uh, you know, there is that fear of falling into the Netflix abyss, you know, yeah, the, the, the movie market is going through a big state of evolution and we'll see where that leads us. Yep. I agree. Well, speaking of uh, where the new year will lead us, Trent asks, Mick and Joe, what are your new year's resolutions? Are you a new year's resolution guy, Mick? I'm not, uh, you know, I try and, and uh, live the best way I can uh, from day to day and resolutions seem a little bit at, especially at this gray point in my life. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's uh, either futile or just beside the point. Well, I made one last year that I actually stuck to. Yeah. Uh, what was that? I joined this app called Letterboxd. Oh yeah. It? Sure. Uh, yeah. It basically it tracks all the movies that you watch because, you know, people are constantly asking me for recommendations 
And I go completely blank face because I can't think of the last five movies that I saw, you know. Uh, that happens to me when we get one of those questions on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I, I know. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I logged in, you know, at the start of the year and I tracked all the movies I watched this year. And, uh, and it's been super helpful for when that question comes up. Um, you know, but also too, I was like, holy crap, I've seen 303 movies this year. <laughs> wow. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it's, it's kind of a neat little thing. So yeah, so that was, that was my new year's resolution last year was to track the movies that I watched better. And I used this app and I did it, it worked and you know, now it's habit. So, uh, do you have you know, one for this year? Uh, not yet. I, I, I'm usually like you, I'm not a big resolutions guy, but, uh, you know, there's still, there's still a couple days to figure it out. So, yeah. We got a few. Yep. All right. Uh, time to get to the main course. This is my question. Uh, Mick, what was your favorite horror movie of the year? Easy one for me. Uh, last night in Soho. Uh, everything about that movie just rang the bells. You know, the casting <laughs> was beautiful. The setting swinging London in the 60s, which took place before Edgar Wright, who co-wrote and directed it, was born. I was around and and consuming entertainment, you know, the pop music in it, casting Diana Rigg in her final uh, role and uh, Terrence Stamp and Rita Tushingham and just uh, everything about it rang true. And We've talked to Edgar for a long time about coming on the show, and he finally told me that he wanted to wait until he had a true horror movie. And starting with Shaun of the Dead, I mean, that that classified as a true horror movie, despite its comedic elements. But I'm so glad that we waited until last night in Soho to get him on and talk about it. But everything about it, it's scary, it's beautiful, it's artful. The, the period is so well portrayed. And it was a dismal failure at the box office <laughs> for, for all of the reasons that we talked about. Yeah. It was new, it was fresh, it was original. The storytelling is great. Edgar is a great technician, but he's also a great storyteller. And his sense of humor, which is usually well on display, was muted in this movie. And I just thought it was a, a beautiful piece of cinematic art. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, he was operating at uh, the, the height of his powers, though, I, I, you know, even saying that we might not have seen the height of Edgar's powers still, you know, not yet. Uh, yeah, which is, which is, which is something thing. that is yeah. very exciting too. Uh, it's, I mean, really though, a master, just master craftsman telling a, uh, a story well told. I, I, I knew this was going to be your, uh, your pick. Uh, do you think it's yeah. also your favorite movie of the year, Mick? I mean, probably. Yeah. So far. Yeah. 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 Because I mean, I watch movies other than horror genre films. Uh, yes, you know, we talked about how important that actually is for aspiring horror filmmakers uh, to yeah. to broaden their horizons beyond the genre. Yeah, uh, but you know, uh, that one is the number one overall, and uh, I, I thank Edgar for making it. It's just so terrific. I cannot wait to watch it again, personally. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's it's a delight. Um, I have, uh, I kind of, I was thinking about this for myself. I kind of cheated a little bit because uh, the movie that I think was my favorite horror movie this year has not come out yet. 
uh, to oh. the public. Yes. Um, I was really, I was really blown away by the black phone. Uh, I hear out, good things. Yeah. It, it's, I really am excited for you to see it, you know, cause I mean, obviously Joe Hill has been someone who's been uh, a part of your life for a long time, uh, you know, through your buddy, Steve. And, uh, <laughs> um, and, and I think it's a really great adaptation of the story. I think, you know, speaking of directors operating at, at the height of their powers, I think it's Scott Derrickson's best movie by far. Um, and, awesome. you know, I, I, I just, I saw it at Beyond Fest this year and I was blown away. It comes out in February. I'm so excited for people to see it. Um, I th- in I the theater. Was, in the theater. Yes, yes. Go, <laughs> go, please. For the love of God, go! Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I really, really thought it was uh, a terrific picture, and I'm, I'm so excited for the rest of the world to kind of catch up, so I can finally talk to some people about it. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll, I guess it'll be February before we can have a conversation. Then. That's true. One, uh, one thing I just wanted to note though before we wrapped up, because I know there is one other piece of uh, horror pop culture that came out this year that I think we were both fans of though it's not a movie, uh, is Midnight Mass. Yeah. Um, Mike Flanagan's Netflix series is a wonder. It is so original, so intelligent, so engaging, so engrossing and scary as hell. Yeah. No, I mean, you said it. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, the best Stephen King story that Stephen King never wrote. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Well put. <laughs> yeah. So um, I would really highly encourage people, if you haven't, checked it out um you know it's i think it's an eight episode series on netflix and uh it it really is you know another filmmaker just operating at the top of his powers and uh you know mike mike continues to grow and dazzle and i can't wait to see what he's got next yeah he's such a talented guy and before we wrap it up i just want to say this has been a landmark year for me in several ways and i just appreciate being here appreciate our audience At the beginning of the year, I had a health issue that was life-threatening. Everything worked out great. I'm fine. I'm healthy and happy and and busy and doing all of that. But it's a very special time for me. And I just want to share my appreciation for the audience for for another year well spent. Mick, we are uh, so ecstatic that you are, are still here with us and we're all very grateful for that. And I know that all of our listeners do not take that for granted. So I appreciate it, Joe. Thanks. All right, Mick. Well, happy holidays. Happy new year. We'll be back for another season of postmortem next year. Uh, and, uh, I can't, I can't wait. can't wait to see who we're going to interview. Yeah. And we got more questions coming and Joe share how to reach you. You can send your questions for Ask Mick Anything to me at Joe Russo Tweets uh, or Joe Russo Graham on Twitter or Instagram, respectively. Or you can send them to Mick directly at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram. All right, Joe, thanks again for another great year. And thank you to the audience. And we hope to share the wealth starting in January. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. 
Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.